Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. All Important Things by Maria F. Bell In the introduction to her devotional that accompanies the Gospel of John, Charlotte Mason penned these words, All important things are simple. And I often bear this in mind as we go about our days, whether we're gathered at the kitchen table for lessons or taking to the halls of our local art gallery. It's been quite a few years since our first visit there to Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. And as I have lately considered Mason's axiom, I've begun reflecting on our many strolls through the halls of that museum. Walk with me, won't you? In Gallery 86 Bold blues of the Mediterranean beckoned us closer. We were looking at Mary Cassatt's The Boating Party this morning. In this picture, measuring nearly three feet in length and four in width, one mother holds one baby in a small citron boat rowed by one man as the waves lap against the vessel. Cassatt painted this picture late in her career, and its sharp angles and vibrant hues were somewhat unconventional for the looser brushstrokes and more muted tones which often characterized her work. Her mentor and friend until his death, Edgar Degas, had introduced her to Japanese prints, and their simplicity and asymmetrical arrangements had influenced this, her largest oil on canvas. Yet, it was still Cassatt, even in this new style, she had not abandoned her abiding theme of maternal affection. Not yet three years old, my only daughter gazed upward at the picture while I read to her its name from the placard below. We shared what we noticed. Perhaps it was the combination of colors. Perhaps it was the gentle gaze of the mother or perhaps it was the soft eyes of the baby, who seems the center of the composition, the oar and the oarsman's hand both drawing even the indiscriminating eye to her. But she saw something that quieted her. It quieted me, too. We went along our way after a time, stopping at Renoir's The Dancer, Monet's Japanese Footbridge, and Van Gogh's La Mousmet. As we strolled under skylights and past the brushstrokes of master hands, her little footsteps brought us back to the boating party, arguably the first piece of Impressionism to be exhibited in the United States. The year was 1895. Pioneers were still breaking ground west of the Ohio River, while a New York public saw the French coast through the eyes of an Allegheny native. And here we were, more than a century of time passed, gripped by it just as New Yorkers had been when the paint was fresher. Without warning, my daughter dropped to the floor in a heap of sobs. I knelt and scooped her up in surprise, drying her dampened cheeks. Are you ready to go home? You must be so tired. I don't want to leave. Neither do I, but it's been a long morning. We need to go and rest now. But I'm not tired, she protested. I don't want to leave this picture. Can we please take it home? She pleaded with the tenderness of innocence, but the fierceness of two. I looked into her dusty blue eyes. 
Did you know, I asked, that many years ago, a man named Mr. Andrew Mellon built this gallery for the American people? Hmm? Her curiosity was piqued. He lived a long time ago, and he enjoyed beautiful and interesting pictures so much that he bought many of them, but he realized that other people would never see those pictures if they only hung in his house. So he built this place for everyone, for people like you and me, and he began hanging pictures on these walls instead. He did? Yes. And then other people began to do the same thing. People like Mr. Chester Dale, who gave the gallery this picture right here. He gave away boating party? But why? She was wrestling. Because he wanted people to enjoy looking, like we have been doing, like everyone here is doing today. I entrusted that conversation to the Lord today. My daughter's first to walk through the West Building's towering bronze doors at the gallery. We had opened those doors, flanked by pale pink Tennessee marble, this morning. And when they closed behind us this afternoon, we turned to face Constitution Avenue and made our way home with fresh thoughts that I trust will carry us into many more walks and many more thoughts through those historied halls. In Gallery 66 The gallery echoes more in the winter. Fewer people visit the city in these bleaker months, and so fewer footsteps fill the halls. It's our favorite time to go. And today, I worried for a moment that the only other visitors in this gallery were disturbed by my boys' toddling stamps and eager shouts. The horses, Mama, the horses! As he raced toward the lustrous commemoration of the men of the 54th Massachusetts, the first Civil War regiment of African Americans enlisted in the North. The Shaw Memorial installed here is the sculptor's own plaster cast of his bronze that has stood on Boston Common since its May 31, 1897 unveiling, when the Battle Hymn of the Republic, an artillery battery, and three warships in the harbor each took their turn to ring its welcome to the city as rain poured lightly down. At roughly 12 feet by 17 feet, the plaster size alone commands the crowds during peak season, and it commanded even our small gathering today. My son promptly took a seat on the floor at the feet of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, and the other visitors smiled his way. His elder sister, who years before had so longed to take a cassette home, followed close behind and took a seat beside him. His other sister found her place on a bench. I reached for my phone and stole a picture to document the calm that had fallen over them, but, irritated by the irony and the disruption I may have caused already, I stuffed my phone back down as quickly as I had taken it out. For more than a decade, Augustus St. Gaudens contemplated the narrative of this work, sculpting the Harvard-educated Shaw and the relief of the ready men of the 54th, which included the sons of Frederick Douglass, as they commenced the work their governor described as full of hope and glory. Today, St. Gaudens' self-described labor of love invited my children to slow down and to consider. Though I did tell them the name of the cast and the men and the battle it depicted, 
We mostly sat and looked. Those valiant men, resolved in their duty, marched to the beat of a drummer boy's hands as we sat looking on. We saw faces, young and old, a sea of legs moving towards something beyond self, guns propped on shoulders fitted in union blue. We saw the flag waving above determined souls led by the 25-year-old Shaw. After he accepted the post, his mother wrote him, I feel ready to die, for I see you willing to give your support to the cause of truth that is lying crushed and bleeding. He would not live to see his mother after his regiment trooped south, and she, with his father, who counted among their friends Emerson and Hawthorne and Beecher Stowe, denied an officer's burial for their son, requesting instead that his body rest with those of his men at the site of their fall to the Confederates at Fort Wagner. I shared this with our family at dinner some weeks later, my eldest nodding in thought and keeping to herself those ideas she was still considering. In Gallery 50, Today was intended to be a day for favorites, to see the dancers and the mothers with their children and the horses and the English countryside and Vermeer. In fact, if ever you stop in to see Vermeer's pictures in the Dutch gallery, where two forgeries, the lace maker and the smiling girl, once hung until forensic analysis exposed them as fraudulent, be warned, a step too close and the alarm will sound, you are too close. Please step back. A flurry of security staff will at the least look your way. As it was today, my five-year-old daughter personally received such a warning from an officer posted nearby, just as we exited that small room where Vermeer's pictures rest. Though she often twirls her way through these halls, she had stopped in this moment at Jan von Heysen's still life with flowers and fruit. She was drawn to something in the delicate arrangement. The peonies, roses, tulips, carnations, veronica, auriculi, tuberoses, and hops. The apples and peaches and grapes, green and purple. She wanted to look closely, and in that wave of enthusiasm, her pointing finger had moved too closely to the winged insect situated on an illuminated pink bloom in the foreground. I assured the lady lieutenant that it was an honest mistake. We apologized. Expression relaxed. She turned to my daughter, intent on allaying the embarrassment we both recognized in her blushing cheeks. You must see something here that you think is really nice. My daughter's eyes brightened. Mm-hmm. We noticed all of the bugs and the raindrops. Yes, isn't that incredible, the officer remarked. They all look so real as if they just flew past us and landed on the picture. My little one smiled with curiosity, and I smiled with gratitude. I sometimes wonder if he added those or if they were sitting on the petals while he painted them. My daughter noticed another moth. Have you worked at the gallery long? I asked. Oh, yes, she replied, glancing at the floor, slow to smile, as if hours upon days upon years of tranquil moments were passing before her mind's eye. 
She had been walking these very halls since I was about my son's age, and my curiosity got the better of me. Why did she choose to work here? How had the gallery changed over the decades? Did she ever look at the paintings with curators or only by herself? Question after question made its way into our conversation until... What have you learned after all of these years surrounded by so much beauty? I've learned to look, she answered with ease. She had had no guide, no well-choreographed class, and the pictures had grown with her as she looked, and looked, and looked again. Would she take a moment to walk my children to one of her favorites in the room? No, no, she shook her head. I would much rather they take me to a painting that they like. And so we turned from the still even and made our way back to Vermeer, the girls gesturing to a lady writing. It is a masterful display of light and a presentation of peaceful reflection, as a woman perhaps records her day in a journal or ruminates over ideas in a letter, but pauses her pen to greet you with a smile. The picture once hung above a family's fireplace in the library of their home until they brought it here, in 1962, to the caretakers who comprise the gallery's staff and preserve these extraordinary works for the people of our nation. We stayed a while in that oak-paneled, low-lit gallery, where Chester Dale donated the institution's first Dutch still life by Willem Kalf some 76 years before. In Gallery 3 Entering the gallery through those bronze doors, Footsteps away from our nation's capitol building, we took a westward turn on the ground floor into a hall that attracts people all the world over. The hall that is home to the 63 original sculptures of French Impressionist Edgar Degas. The horses, the jockeys, the women and the dancers, they are all there with stories to tell. And Mr. Paul Mellon, only son of the gallery's founder, wanted people to hear them. Especially, he said, those little citizens who with wide eyes enjoy looking. Eager to see little dancer aged 14, my elder daughter dashed ahead for the delicate wax figure encased by glass. A watchful guard winked her way. I steered the stroller and held my son on my hip while his sister walked a few steps ahead. Today marked her first time to view the waxen girl dressed in a cotton file bodice and cotton and silk tutu. There was much I wanted to say. It's the only sculpture Degas exhibited. His critics called it repulsive. Look, beeswax, rope, clay, human hair, linen slippers. But I held my tongue and kept a few paces behind. It is too easy to add to the noise of her world, I thought and I have made that mistake before. She has only a little more than a year left before she begins formal lessons, I thought, and her days will be full of formality then. Today, I want stillness for her, I thought. I want her to greet Degas and to meet Marie von Houtem. And meet them she did. Days later, she found me standing over a hot stove preparing dinner, while her brother circled our small kitchen with his toy airplane. 
Mama, why do you think that little dancer wore a sad face? Her question startled me, so I set the spoon down and we talked. We remembered Degas' girl, discovered in his studio after his death, 97 years before my own girl's birth, and gifted to the American people by the younger Mellon in his final gallery bequest, the year I graduated from high school. We contemplated the humanity of this one Marie that French bourgeois called opera rat, and critics considered depraved. And I was thankful for the simple quiet we had in that famed hall just one month ago, where my children stood mind to mind with the dancer's maker, and the dignity that our supreme maker saw fit to display through his hands. Beauty and simplicity have ever walked hand in hand, and a little child may enter the kingdom of art as readily as the kingdom of heaven. Mrs. Howard Glover If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.